If we are really honest with ourselves, we would all love to be rich. But what does that really mean? Is it simply having a nice car, a big house, new clothes? What if living a rich life isn't what you think? What if it's more about what you give away than what you hold on to? What if it's more about the contents of your heart than the contents of your bank account? In this series, we'll explore what it truly means to live a rich life. I'm so glad to be here with you today, whether you are worshiping with us on Facebook Live back in the chapel or maybe at Crossroads West or you're here for baby dedication, uh, we are really uh, glad you're here. I want to extend a special welcome to you today as we begin this brand new series, I Want to Be Rich. Now, last service I said, I want to be a witch. Uh, it could have been worse, okay? I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> But uh, we are really excited about this series because we, we are going to be discovering God's plan for our life when it comes to money. And, and I know that there's a certain stigma that money comes when talking about it in church. And, and wherever you are, no matter how much money you have or, or how much money you don't have, the truth is that we all deep down believe that having more money would lead to a better life in some way, doesn't it? I mean, if we just had more money, then we would have more comfort and security. Maybe we would finally have that respect that we desire. We would finally, you know, be able to afford this or that, which would lead to happiness. You see, how we approach money, it, it says more about us than we even realize or that we even maybe see at first glance. Now, for those of us in the church, the thing about money is that how we handle money, how we approach money, it really says and determines and reveals how we view Jesus. Now, you, you may not agree with that at first glance, but we both know that Jesus, he, he didn't just come to save us, he didn't just come to give us a, a jail-free card, okay, get out of hell, but he actually can show us a better way to live in this life. And, and so that means that he wants to show us a better way to live when it comes to our marriage, or parenting, our sexuality, uh, how, how, we, uh, how, how we approach our career. And money is certainly one of those components of our life that he says, hey, surrender that to me, I can show you a better way to live. Now, this requires that, that we begin thinking differently than how we've previously thought before. If we want to experience God's best for our life, it, it means that we're going to kind of change directions and claim to not have all the answers and realign our lives with what God says is right, true, and best. But again, money is one of those things, if we're honest, that, that we tend to hang on to the most, and, and it's usually the last thing that we're willing to surrender to Jesus. Now, by a show of hands, how many of you have started decorating for Christmas? Anybody? Okay, all right, a few of us. We see you west. Uh, my wife and I started doing this this past weekend, and uh, I don't know how it is for you in your home, but it can be somewhat of a frustrating experience, right? I mean, I love Christmas. It's one of my favorite times of year, but sometimes it can lead to a lot of tension between my wife and I, and so I always make sure that I get a date on the calendar for marriage counseling when I know that I've got to go down to the basement to pull the boxes out and uh, kidding, all right? But, you know, the thing about Christmas lights is that, you know, if one goes out, they all go out, right? 
So several years ago, we bought a pre-lit Christmas tree, and, and I suppose that a pre-lit Christmas tree is a good idea in theory. I mean, whoever came up with that idea, well done. It, you can avoid a lot of tangling that happens with strand of lights like this. And, um, and after several years, though, I've realized it's not all that great of an idea because when one bulb goes out, they all go out, and you would think, well, just change the strand of lights. Have you ever tried to take lights off a pre-lit Christmas tree? Yeah, they're like super glued on there. And not only that, but I can, for the life of me, find that one missing bulb that is causing all the lights to go out because we, at the previous year, plugged in some kind of ornament that needed uh, electricity to, to spin these little snowmen around and around. And, and so when you pull out that one light, here's what happens. Half or maybe even all of them go out, right? I mean, it's really frustrating. And then you try to find, well, where is that, that one bulb? Where is that one uh, missing, missing light? And... And you see, it's just one light. It, in a strand of 100, it affects literally every other light. And, and yet again, it, it's just one. We, we wouldn't think it's that big of a deal. You wouldn't maybe even notice it if that light were out, if it were on the Christmas tree. But you know, I think when it comes to our faith and when it comes to Jesus and, and, and money, it's kind of like that one, that one missing light bulb. You see, if, if this part is missing in our life, and this is the last thing that we're willing to surrender to him, and, and it's the least thing that we're willing to say, okay, show me what's better, it literally affects all other parts of our life. And so Jesus says to us, hey, give me that one last missing bulb, and, and I can show you a better way. And all of a sudden, everything else in our life may start to fall in place. Now, one thing about money that we're going to discover in this series, again, is that it's never really about money. It, it, money simply reveals where we are trying to find our hope, where we are trying to find our significance and worth and, and value. And so you want to know, what am I living for? All you need to do is look at your credit card statements or your bank account. Okay, that's going to tell you something. Now, I know the stigma of uh, talking about money in church is that, you know, all pastors care about is money. All the church wants is my money. And so if you're a guest, you're not a Christian, and you're with us today, we're glad you're here. Okay, we're not going to ask you to give. We don't want anything from you. And, and I'll even give you permission to just tune me out for the next few minutes, okay? You have my permission. But before you do that, let me just challenge you with one question. All right, when you think about your bills, when you think about maybe your your raise that you hope to get in the future, or maybe a demotion that's going to possibly happen in January, or you think about your credit card debt. When you think about your finances, does, does that produce anxiety in you? Does that produce worry in you? Does that produce a lack of peace? Or when you think about money, does that lead to fulfillment? Or are you just satisfied? Are you like, man, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And is it possible that, that there just might be a better way to approach this part of your life? And so if you're a guest, you're not a Christian, I want you to understand our motivation when it comes to talking with you about money. It goes like this. We want something for you more than we want something from you. We want something for you because we really believe that if we realign our lives with what Jesus says is right and true, that it will lead to something better. He can show us a better way. We don't want something from you. We do want something for you. And that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Jesus said it like this in uh, one of his gospels in, in the biography of Matthew. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, what's interesting about this is Jesus doesn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. What, what, why does he say that? 
Well, you see, Jesus is brilliant. He designed us. He made us. And he knows that we have been created to our, for our affections, our desires, and, and even our hearts to follow after what we put our money towards. Our heart always follows our money. And so this is an important part of our life. We can't not talk about this. Maybe that's why there are over 2,300 verses in all of Scripture that talk about how to appropriately handle money. This was actually the most common topic that Jesus discussed whenever he taught for three years in his ministry. He talked about money more than heaven, hell, faith, prayer, healing, anything like that. It all, it all went back to money. Why? Because Jesus says, hey, you've got to have that one, that one last bob. Otherwise, everything else, it's not going to add up. And so if you are a Christian, if you call Crossroads home, uh, you might think, well, this series is just, you know, your subtle attempt to get more money from me, and uh, you're, you're trying to fund more ministries to reach people and to care for people and to help people and to advance God's mission in this world. That's your hidden agenda, isn't it, Patrick? Let me just say, no, that's not my hidden agenda, right? This series is our blatant attempt to do that, okay? So just cards on the table, being real, being honest, because we really believe that we were actually designed to be generous. That's who God created us to be. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn uh, to the book of 1 Timothy. Now, if you don't own a Bible, there should be a Bible near you. And uh, feel free to take that with you when you leave here today. That's our gift to you. 1 Timothy can be found towards the very back of your Bibles in between the books of 2 Thessalonians and 2 Timothy. And we're going to be in chapter 6, and uh, as you're turning there, let me just set up the context and, and give you a little bit of the background so that you can understand what, what we're reading, what, what's actually taking place here. All right, this, this letter was written by a guy named Paul who 2,000 years ago started a bunch of churches, and, and what Paul did throughout the course of his life was he had different interns, different apprentices that studied under him. One of those guys was Timothy, Okay. And so Timothy was this guy who learned from Paul, and uh, Timothy took over some of Paul's churches as, as Paul left and started other churches throughout the Roman world. And, and so this letter is kind of like an instructional manual for Timothy about some things that Paul had previously taught him. And so this book is kind of like a reminder about how to lead and, and how to pastor uh, churches. And at the end of this letter, in chapter 6, Paul talks about what it's like to deal with difficult people in the church, Okay. I know you've probably never met anybody difficult in the church, but just imagine that that actually took place 2,000 years ago, all right? And so Paul is talking about, hey, you will come across greedy people. Here's what to say. Here's what to do. Here's what not to do. Pick up with me in chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 6. Here's what we read. He reminds Timothy of this. Hey, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That, that's true life, he's saying. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. We'll be fine. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and, and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Get rich quick schemes, pyramid schemes. He says, for the love of money. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, I want you to notice that there's a difference between having money. There's a difference between making money and loving money. Right? Paul's not saying that, that to have money or to earn money is wrong or is evil. No, that, that, that's not the case at all. But there is a difference between having money and loving money. He says that there are those who are eager for more. 
Now, these are simply symptoms of trying to find significance, value, worth, identity in all the wrong places. That's what Paul, that's what Paul is saying here. And, and he's reminding Timothy that, hey, when you come across greedy people like that, eventually, you may not see it at first, but eventually they appear to have it all together, but their life is headed towards destruction. They're, they're headed towards ruin. It's a trap. Don't, don't fall into that temptation. You see, when we hang on so tightly to what we think is ours, it reveals a bigger problem that ultimately leads to places that we never intended to go. This past week, I uh, ran across an article that describes how different hunters over in India capture monkeys. So I figured this would be very helpful for you to hear, and uh, it's free, okay? If you've ever wanted to know how to hunt monkeys, you're about to find out, all right? Well, some animal behaviorists several years ago discovered that uh, monkeys, after uh, studying them for, for a long time, are really selfish creatures, all right? They're always looking out for themselves. They want to hang on tightly to what's theirs. They are just, they exist for themselves. It's all about them. And so when hunting experts realized this, they discovered a very successful tactic to capture monkeys. What they do is they take a coconut, they empty the coconut of all its water, they drill a small hole inside the coconut, and then they fill the coconut with bananas and different foods that uh, the monkey likes, okay? And then on the other end of that coconut, they tie this little rope to the end of it, and then they place the coconut along the path of where a a monkey is going to see the coconut, he's going to smell the food inside it, and all the while, he, he or she, the hunter, goes behind a bush or goes behind a tree and, and is watching and waiting for this monkey to pick up the coconut. Well, whenever the monkey picks up the coconut and he sees and, and smells the food that's inside, he sticks his hand inside the coconut and he grabs a hold of it. Okay? Now, whenever he sticks his hand in the coconut, that alerts the hunter to then begin pulling the rope to him. And then next thing the monkey knows, he's in a little cage. The furry guy now belongs to some guy he's never seen before. And voila, you have a monkey, all right? But here's the thing about it. All right, as the monkey is being dragged towards the hunter behind the tree, he could let go. I mean, he, when he realizes that, hey, you know what, this doesn't feel right. I, I'm going a direction that, that I don't want to go and, and I don't intend to go. What, what's going on here? No, he is so focused on the coconut. He's so focused on what's his, his food. He's so focused on, on grabbing and what is his and, and it belonging to him that, that he just refuses to let go. And then boom, the next thing he knows, he's a slave. He's in bondage. He's behind bars. He is so focused on what's his. He doesn't even have the perspective to realize where he's headed. We're not talking about silly monkeys and coconuts right now, are we? Talking about us. Look at what Paul says again to Timothy. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. All right, that word trap is actually a hunting term in the original Greek language that describes when an animal is unknowingly lured away into being captured. It's like Paul is saying, hey, when we become so fixated on our accounts and, and, and what we need to buy and what's ours consuming and accumulating, it's only a matter of time until we wake up and we find ourselves in, in some cage. We find ourselves in a place we never intended to be to begin with. And doesn't that describe some of our stories I mean, when you look back on your past, it, some of us, our heart's beating a little bit quicker because you're thinking, man, that, that, that describes me. Now, I'm willing to bet that, that many of us, 
you know, we, we've thought before, maybe we're there right now, we're, we're only one raise, one credit card, one house, one vacation, one car away from true happiness and fulfillment in life. But, but for those of us who are maybe on the other side of some of those big purchases that we've made, we had this moment, okay? We had this moment when we realized, you know what? It wasn't at all what I thought it was gonna be. I got totally ripped off. But that's not how it was sold to me on the commercial, right? And so instead of peace, we experience dissatisfaction. And instead of security, instead of comfort, we experience maybe more fear, more insecurity. And instead of, uh, instead of significance, we feel emptiness. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing. Fantasy is always the enemy of reality. And that's true whether in your marriage, all right, with your finances, it's always the enemy of reality because we are so focused and fixated on that coconut that we don't even see what's a few feet ahead of us, where we're ultimately headed towards. Now, it's one thing for us to acknowledge the problem. It's one thing for us to say, hey, God, God calls us to leave our life of greed, to realize that it's not about us, that that's the problem. And maybe some of us are thinking, okay, I, I've grabbed that coconut. I, I know that I'm headed to a place I don't want to go. What do I do next? Or maybe you're there in that cage and you think, how, how do I get out? I, I want to be free. Well, again, this requires that we actually own it, take responsibility, and to begin thinking differently and be willing to align our lives with what God says is right, true, and best. Now, you might think that Paul's advice to Timothy when combating greed, when talking about, okay, here's what to tell people who are in that cage, who are grabbing the coconut. They didn't mean to, but they're there anyways. All right, his advice to Timothy, it's a little bit counterintuitive. It's backwards, it's upside down. But, but here's what he later says to Timothy. Check it out, verse 17. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. All right, now experiencing true freedom and contentment with our finances, it begins by first thinking differently about how we see Jesus. All right, Paul, Paul is saying that, look, God's biggest competitor isn't Satan. God's biggest competitor isn't darkness, the world, culture, and, and nothing like that. No, he, he's saying, look, God's biggest competitor is, is money. Right? Nothing tends to drift our hearts further away from God than the love of money. All right, his biggest rival for our hearts are finances. Now, what's totally upside down and counterintuitive about this is that experiencing financial freedom doesn't happen by first applying some wise financial management principles. All right? That is necessary at some point. Don't hear me wrong. We're told in our text, though, that a defining characteristic of God is that he is generous. He's a giver. And so we've got to begin there. Our response is determined by realizing just what we've received. Let me say it like this. All right, God has been generous to you so that he can be generous through you. All right, God has been generous to you so that he can be generous through you. And so before you hear anything else, and if you hear nothing else today, let me ask you, what do you think when you read and hear that first phrase, God has been generous to you? Do you actually believe that? Do you actually know that or you're like, nope, too good to be true? You see, nothing else matters when it comes to money if you think that God has just given you the leftovers in life. Rather, a healthy financial life begins by understanding all that you have and all that God has done for you. You see, a grateful person is also a generous person. A stingy Christian is someone who doesn't really understand who God is and what they have. No, your gratitude is measured by your generosity. 
And so for us to change directions here, it's going to require, again, that we think differently and that we redefine some terms that maybe we have thought all along, well, it means this, but really it's only led me to this place and it can't be all that good. So, so we've got to redefine some terms here. And, and if you're in a place where you're just not happy with where you are financially, it causes you a lot of stress and, and worry. Look, you can keep doing what you've always done and you'll just keep getting what you've always received. But if you want to experience freedom, if you want to actually embrace God's better way, then it's going to require doing some things differently. And we've got to start by redefining some terms. The first one goes like this. All right, rich equals generosity. All right, wealth, in other words, equals giving. All right, we think of, of wealth in, in terms of what we accumulate, but, but God sees it differently. Being rich is all about what you give away. It's not about what you have, in other words, but it's actually about what you give. You see, most of the time, the thing I think that keeps us from giving is confusing our intentions for our actions. I bet that, that most of us listening right now, we want to be generous. We intend to be more giving towards those in our life who have needs. And, and yet it's, it's just something that, that we keep putting off. It's something that we're going to do in the, the future because we equate giving with people who just have a little bit more than us, who are just ahead of us. But the problem is the way that we define wealth and, and being rich in our culture, it's so relative. It's a moving target, isn't it? A few years ago, Money, Ma uh, Money, um, Money, what is it? Money Magazine uh, did a survey of their subscribers by asking, "What would it take for you to feel wealthy? For you to feel wit? For, for you to feel like a witch? There it is again. For you to feel like a witch? For you to feel rich?" And their responses just blew them away. They couldn't believe it. All right. By and large, the, the unanimous decision by all their subscribers was that they would feel rich if they finally had $5 million. Can you believe that? Now, this is crazy considering the fact that the average net worth of subscribers to Money Magazine is about $2.5 million. There's always somebody out there with more. There's always somebody out there who has it better than you. And so you think, well, once I finally get there, then, then I, I'll be generous. Then I'll, be, I'll give. I don't know if the name Abraham uh, Maslow means anything to you, but he was a famous uh, psychologist in the 20th century, and he's perhaps most famous for coming up with what he called the hierarchy of needs. Now, from a psychological perspective, this pyramid that he created describes how every person, no matter who you are, is created with this desire to, to need something and, and to want something. From the very beginning, all right, we have needs, and then once that need is met, we then progress on towards focusing on something else that we need. All right, so check out this pyramid here. All right, when we are born, this at the bottom here represents when we are babies. All right, we have physiological needs. We hunger, we, have, um, we, we need water, we need milk, we need warmth, we need rest, okay? Physiological needs. All right, a baby never wakes up in the middle of the night and thinks to himself, mom and dad are sleeping, I, I think I can wait on milk. No, right? It's all about the baby, isn't it? All right, so then once those needs are met, we then progress towards safety needs. All right, we want to feel safe. And, and then once we feel safe and once we uh, feel like our physiological needs have been met, all of a sudden we then experience this need to be loved, this need to be accepted. We want to be embraced by our friends. Then we have esteem needs. This simply means we want to be recognized for accomplishments that we have. We want to have value, significance, purpose in life. We have those needs. And then once we feel like we have purpose in life, we then arrive in life where we have needs defined as self-actualization. Now, this is just a really fancy way to describe that our needs go from needs to wants. 
All right, th- this phase right here is when we get older and we realize that, hey, I, I want this. And all of a sudden, it's no longer one, it, it's a need. And this describes our need for luxury items, things that we really don't need. But, and the thing about being in this top triangle is that it's unceasing, it, it's continual, it's never satisfied. And so once you have something that's bigger, better, shinier, newer, it's just going to be something else. And so he realized after a lot of research and study and time with patients that deep down, we're almost created from a biological mental standpoint to always look at things through the lens of improvement. We want something that's better. We're, rather than focusing on what's before us now, we're looking on uh, what's next. We see things through the lens of what's better, what can we improve? And so what if we we did just the opposite and whenever we feel discontent, whenever we want something more, we just said, you know what, it it could be worse, okay? It it could be worse. So let's practice this right now as a church, okay? I'm going to say a phrase and I want you to, um, after I'm done saying this phrase, to just repeat back to me, it could be worse, all right? Very simple, okay? It could be worse, all right? So so let's start out with this. When I roll into work on Monday morning and I want a new job, it could be worse. Okay, very good. Uh, When I'm watching the game later today and all of a sudden I realize I need a bigger TV, okay, very good. When I walk out my front door and I realize my neighbor just bought a newer model of the car that I just bought, okay. When I wake up in the morning and I roll over and I look at my husband, Okay, some of you need to call our counseling center and sign up for some marriage counseling, all right? Back in 2013, Jim Carrey tweeted this. You may have seen it before. I've shared it several years ago. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of so they could see it's not the answer. A guy much wiser than Jim Carrey said this 2,000 years ago. Watch out, Jesus said, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. You see, it's much harder to be generous with what you hope you have next than it is to be generous with what you have right now. Generosity is about really giving in proportion to to what you have. Therefore, the more you have, Jesus would say, well, the more you're called to give. And so no matter how much money you make, no matter how much you have, uh, I want to challenge you with this one question. In what ways are the people in your life experiencing God's generosity through you? All right, the people in your life, the people that you were closest to, are, are, they, are they experiencing, knowing, and seeing God's generosity because of how you were treating them, how, how generous you are with your time, your, your resources, and even your finances? How are people around you experiencing God's generation, uh, generosity through you? Okay, so if um, that, that leads to our next redefining of terms, it goes like this. If, if wealth and rich, being rich equals generosity, then generosity equals sacrifice. Generosity equals sacrifice. It's not about how much you have, but it's about what you do with what you have. God isn't opposed to you having money and possessions, but he is opposed to his people being owned by their money and possessions. There's a difference. You see, generosity isn't about the amount that you give, but it's about what you give how much it really costs you, how much you're giving away, how much sacrifice is involved. 
Sometimes uh, us Christians will use this really churchy word called stewardship, and and it's just a really fancy way to describe how uh, we are to wisely manage our time, our resources, and our money. Now, 2,000 years ago in uh, first century Roman world, that term steward always communicated uh, the fact that it was somebody who would oversee property, would manage resources on behalf of somebody else, all right? And so the the manager, the the steward, was not the owner of, of the property. He wasn't the owner of the resources or investments. He, he was just the manager. He, he was in charge of it for a time, but he knew that it wasn't ultimately his. And the reality is that our money really isn't ours. Now, your money isn't, it, it's not really yours. We think it is. We, we earned it. We invested in it. And yet, the thing is that, that it doesn't belong to us. God owns it all. Therefore, God God is not begging you to give. God is not contingent upon you releasing your wallet, your checkbook, your credit card statements. No, here's the thing. Even even if you earned or you invested the money in your account, the truth is it wouldn't be there if the creator God hadn't given you the mind and the ability and the intellect to work for it and to invest it, all right? What could change for you if you realize that God has been generous to you so that he can be generous through you? One time Jesus is walking through a city with a couple of his closest buddies and, and they come across the temple. They, they come upon the temple. The temple was kind of like the ancient version of a, of a church, all right? And, and they get to the part of the building where people are, are giving their offering to God. It was an act of worship. And, and, and he kind of points out what's happening to his, three, or to his closest friends. He says this, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, This poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, she gave out of her poverty and she put in all that she had to live on. Let me translate this for a second. Jesus is saying generosity is about sacrifice. It's not about what you give, but it's about how much what you give costs you. right, sometimes the person who needs to be the most generous and who needs my generosity more than anyone or more than any, anything else is me. What do I mean by that? You see, when I'm not in the habit of giving, I get really selfish, right? I get really prideful. I think it's all about me. My, my ego takes over. But when I give, selflessness takes over. That's why we encourage everybody who calls Crossroads home to give uh, regularly, sacrificially to this church. Now, one of the metaphors throughout the Bible for the church is this metaphor of it being a body. You might hear it referred to as the body of Christ, all right? And so let's connect the dots here of, of body and giving. All right, Steve Larmy, one of our partners over in Africa, shared this analogy with me, and he shares it with, with his teams over there. All right, if you think about a body, all right, blood is flowing from one part of the body to the next. Cells are, are being uh, carried from one part of the body to the next. Nutrients, there's a flow taking place. Now, once that flow stops, once that flow stops, all of a sudden, sickness is going to happen. Disease is going to take place. Why? Because your body is designed to freely give from one part to the next, and, and so Whenever that that giving stops, whenever the flow stops, all of a sudden dysfunction happens. And the same is true with the church. When we stop giving, when we stop sacrificing, all of a sudden we get sick. The church gets sick. Why? Because we think it's all about us. When we get inwardly focused, when we're all about our needs, our preferences, our our wants, our this, this, and that, 
That's when division takes root. That, that's when Jesus is not honored whatsoever. Now, let me tell you something here for just a second. We are in a really great season right now as a church. All right? I mean, we've been through a lot these past two years. We've been through a lot of change and transition. And you know what? We've got a lot of momentum right now. We've got some of the, the difficulty behind us. And, and if you were to walk into our offices throughout the week, there would just be this contagious buzz and, and anticipation among some of our staff members. And, and we're really excited about the future because we believe that our best days are before us, that, that God is not done with us, and, and that we want to continue being open-handed to him and what he wants to accomplish through us here, near, and, and far away. And we are excited about what's to come. But you know what? We've got to be careful. Here's why. Because of what we've been through the past few years, there is this sense that, you know what? We've arrived. We've made it. And not only have, have we survived, all right, but we've actually grown. And, and we, we've been really successful with, with different things that we've tried lately. And, and let me just tell you, we have got to be so careful because we have not arrived whatsoever. Our work is not done at all. All right, the work before us is, is huge. All right, it is not about us. And, and these are the moments when we unintentionally become inwardly focused right after we experience a victory. I think most church splits and divisions happen not when a church goes through a really difficult time. I think church splits happen whenever the church has just experienced some victory. Why? Because we're quick to take credit for it. But as Pastor Craig Rochelle says, the greatest threat to a church's future success is present success. We're not there yet. We've got to keep going. We've got to keep moving. And this requires sacrifice on behalf of all of us. I want to share with you an email I got from a guy we're going to call Gary this past week. He first started attending Crossroads a few months ago, and he said it like this. He said, I just want to say thank you, Patrick. I came to Crossroads for the first time in July after I was in the ER, having gone through seizures due to stress, too much alcohol, and just going days with, without eating. I was non-responsive, and I remember thinking that, that I, just wanted, I just wanted to go. I just wanted to die. Well, when they realized what had happened, they did a psych evaluation on me, and I admitted to them that I was actually planning my suicide. It was the darkest place of my life, Gary said. I want you to know that I'm much better now. In fact, this is one of the best seasons of my life that I've ever experienced. And, and you, might, you might wonder why. How did this change and transformation happen? Well, once I started going to Crossroads, I was surprised to meet people. I was surprised to meet you, he says, because I realized that the people there aren't perfect and they weren't judgmental of me. Crossroads helped me find Jesus once again in my life. And, and as a result, I'll never be the same again. You see, the vision that Jesus had for his community is that we would be imperfect people experiencing this freedom to admit, you know what, we don't have it all together, we do mess up, and, and yeah, we're ashamed of this and that, but, but we point each other to the one who is perfect, the one who does provide forgiveness, a second chance, and, and a reset on our life, no matter how badly we've screwed up. That, that's what it's about. And uh, <clears throat> I want to get really... Come on, we got to finish. I got one minute here, okay? So <laughs> I want to get really practical with you for just a second, all right? We've got Christmas services coming up in six weeks, all right? Do you have your shopping done yet? Six weeks from now, we've got multiple Christmas Eve services. We're having eight services between our Newburgh and West Campus, okay? Why in the world are we having eight services? Well, this is the one time of year that our culture actually recognizes that our God, our creator, is generous. How is he generous? Well, he gave us the best, most perfect gift of all time, and that is his son. And so we want to leverage this time of year by welcoming people who normally don't attend church. Your friends, your family members who don't have a church home, who maybe don't even believe in Jesus, this is 
is our opportunity to welcome them, to love them, for you to bring them here. And you know what? We're having multiple services because we want to be personal with them. We want to be able to serve them, and we want to be able to accommodate them in a way that they deserve uh, to be served. And so here's what we need from you, okay? A lot of lives and eternities are going to be transformed on December 23rd and 24th. All right, more stories like Gary, okay? are going to happen. People are going to hear about a God who doesn't hate them, who is actually for them, who offers forgiveness and, and actually shows us a better way to live and that there is a God out there who actually will one day make all things right that, that has been made wrong in our life. And so for that to happen, we need you to be a part of what we're doing. So here's what I want you to do. We need your time. That's it. We need your time. Log on to our website, cccgo.com forward slash Christmas, all right, and sign up to serve there. Here's the question that we struggle with as a staff. What in the world, what in the world do you give the sovereign creator king who has everything, who the Bible says has all things have been made for him, through him, and by him, and, th- and in him, what do you give him for his birthday? You give him people. Because that's that's what he loves most. You give him the person who may be close to you, but far from God, you, you bring them with you. That, that's, what, that's what will honor Jesus most. And so I want you to give of your time to start there by logging onto our website and signing up to serve uh, with us on Christmas Eve, okay? Let's wrap things up. If being rich equals generosity and gener- generosity equals sacrifice, then sacrifice equals trust. All right, sacrificing the things that we naturally want to hang on to most can't happen apart from trust. Now, when we hear that word sacrifice, we probably get a little bit scared and a little bit fearful because of what it might mean, what it might call us to give up. You see, one of the biggest threats to generosity in your life is being controlled by fear rather than faith. And while this may sound extreme and you may not agree with it, it is impossible to separate your faith from the way that you handle money. Because Jesus says, look, you're still holding on to that one last light bulb. I need it. The level of your giving is determined by the depth of your trust in who God is. All right, let me, let me wrap up by, by telling you this. All right, the first time that the word worship ever appears in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis chapter 22 describes a story when a man by the name of Abraham, a father, has this only son by the name of Isaac. And God comes to Abraham one day and says, Abraham, I, I need you to give up Isaac. In fact, I need you to put him up on an altar. I need you to kill him, and he's going to be an offering to, to me. Now, long story short, doesn't make sense to Abraham whatsoever. God, you provided me the son. You're asking me to kill him. I just don't get it. Things didn't add up for Abraham, but he, he did it anyways. Right, he didn't end up having to kill Isaac because God provided a ram at the last second. But, but as they're making their way up the mountain, Abraham doesn't know that that ram is going to be provided for. All right, he's making his way up the mountain, and Isaac, his son, looks up at his dad and says, Dad, what, what are we doing? Where, where are we going? Why do we have to go up on that mountain? And, and here's what Abraham told his son. He said, we're going to go up on that mountain, and we're going to worship. And that's the first time the word worship ever appears in Scripture. It's connected with It's connected with sacrifice. Why did sacrifice happen? Why was Abraham willing to give up his one and only son? Well, because he trusted God. And had that trust not been there, sacrifice would have never happened. And you see, that story was simply a foreshadowing of another sacrifice that would happen hundreds of years later on that very same mountain. And you see, the ironic thing about it is that on that same mountain, thousands of years later, there would be another father who would take his one and only son to that mountain, and only this time that there was no substitute, there was no ram. Why? Because 
his son Jesus was the substitute. And yet we were kind of like Isaac in Genesis 22. Because of his sacrifice, we get to walk free. And it was on that mountain where Jesus was crucified that we experienced the generosity of God unlike ever before. That's why the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Why? So that we could be free. And so that we could experience his generosity and his giving would be known to others through us. So here's what I want you to do this week, okay? The reality is you've got some people in your life that have been generous to you. You are where you are with God. You are where you are in life because somebody at some point in your past, maybe a mom, a dad, a teacher, somebody has been generous with their time. They've been generous with their wisdom, their resources, maybe generous with their money, okay? Here's what I want you to do this week. Would you just thank them? All right, it sounds a little bit corny and cheesy because we got Thanksgiving coming up this week, but if we don't express our gratitude, it communicates ingratitude. And so what would it look like for you to send a text, for you to write them a note, for you to call them up, maybe for you to sit beside them at Thanksgiving and say, hey, I, I just wanna thank you. Because whether you know it or not, through their generosity, they've allowed you to see and experience God in a way that, that has brought you actually closer to him, all right? I want you to pick up with us next week, come back, all right? We've designed this series to build one off the other. And so uh, you need to come back and, and as we continue on this journey of uh, discovering what being rich is all about in God's eyes, okay? Let me pray. God, thank you that you have been generous to us. And, and I know that for a lot of us, that seems too good to be true because we know how bad we've messed up. We know that there are certain lies and labels that, that are telling us that, well, I'm not deserving of that. There's no way, if he knew this about me, why would he give so much to me? And yet, and yet the cross tells us there's nothing we can do that's bigger than than Jesus, what you already paid for us. You, You paid our one and only debt. And so God, would you show us and you teach us what it looks like for us to take the generosity that you've given to us and to love people and to show other people your generosity through us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.